to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber DeGraff. I'm an astrophysicist at Western Washington University. And you know what I wish we had? History of science courses. But we're going to do the next best thing, because today's episode is about the birth of the periodic table. In 2019, many people were celebrating 150 years of the table of elements. It was simpler times. And at the close of that year, my colleagues organized a reenactment featuring the scientists credited with the creation of the periodic table. I hope you enjoy this unique episode where we connect the Industrial Revolution to the birth of atomic theory. And then we attempt to travel back in time where we hear, in their native language, the thoughts of Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev, English chemist and physicist John Dalton, and German chemist Julius Lothemeyer. Today's show is going to be really exciting because we are traveling through time. Not time traveling like in the movie Interstellar or Back to the Future, but we'll have a chance to talk to Dr. Dmitry Mendeleev, the person given credit for creating the periodic table of elements in 1869, and some of his contemporaries. Why are people celebrating the table in 2019? And here to help me answer it is Dr. Sergei Smirnov, a biochemist, Dr. Dietmar Schwartz, a biologist, and Dr. Tim Kowalczyk, a physical chemist. All of these amazing folks are colleagues of mine at Western Washington University. Thank you all for coming to talk to me today. Thanks for having us, Gina. Mm -hmm. 2019 is the International Year of the Periodic Table, and you all took part in this reenactment, and it took us through the creation of the periodic table. But before we get into like who you played, what did you do during that reenactment, what stuck with me the most during your performance at the Spark Museum was the state of chemistry before basically the late 1800s, and that was alchemy. Can you give us a little background about alchemy? What did it look like before the late 1800s, and how does it relate to your field? Tim, I think you know a lot about this. So yeah, I think in pop culture, when we think about alchemy, we think about things like transforming lead into gold. Sometimes it's called transmuting lead into gold or other metals into noble metals. Other areas that we think of here are things like the philosopher's stone or the search for the elixir of life, trying to seek immortality. All of these are kind of associated with medieval times, but it's really much more global of a phenomenon than that. Alchemy was taking place in ancient Egypt. There's examples of chemical activity happening all the way from China to Europe and the Middle East, all throughout the Middle Ages and, and medieval times. So. When we think about what the goals of alchemy were, it's really about improving the human condition, ultimately. So it was intertwined a lot with natural philosophy, um, trying to figure out how we could improve people's lives in various ways. So whether that was with um, the search for medicinal, special medicines in China, or whether it was the search for a material that could dissolve all other materials, that was another common item that was sought for. And the big central sort of gift that alchemy generated for the different societies at the time was experimentation, playing around with material to try to understand how it works so that we could seek these life-improving objects and experiences. When speaking of alchemy in the ancient world, there was a fascination with what some thought was spontaneous life. Dr. Dietmar Schwartz. People tried to understand how the world essentially worked as was part of alchemy. What people really fascinated was what is the nature of life, what is life. And uh, for a long time, people thought that there was actually some sort of life force that you know, differentiated living organisms from 
from other inanimate things. And so that was part of alchemy. And it took until the, the end of the 19th century to really, and the beginning of the 20th century, to really um, show that, well, there really isn't like a secret force to life. In the end, it is all chemistry and tied back to the periodic table of elements. So basically, you were saying it's experiment, it's talking about life, but like what kind of experiments were happening in the 1800s that kind of relate to all this? Certainly, uh, to, to vitalism, people started um, noticing that you could make substances such as urea from inanimate chemical, other chemical substances that were not related to life, or people were able to make alcohol, ferment alcohol, even when the yeast cells were dead, basically showing that these processes that were previously thought to be you know, specific to life could actually happen in a test tube without any living organisms present. Biochemist Dr. Sergei Smirnov brings our attention to the beginnings of scientific collaboration in Europe. And one more thing to add, alchemy became a, one of the first areas of human activity where people had to communicate to one another and to explain what they are doing. That's what we do oh. today in science routinely. But alchemists, some of them worked in isolation, but eventually most of them wanted to come out and say what they did. And that was catalyzed by emergence of universities in medieval Europe, so it was, it was going hand in hand. But today mm. we have this scientific communication established, but it started back then when alchemists of various nature and, and various places, they wanted to be heard, wanted to be, because they wanted to be famous, they wanted to get some credit for, but they also <laughs> got into a habit of criticizing one another, which is a very essential nature of modern science. Right, so basically what you're saying, we have alchemy where it's the study of trying to change elements or at least just study what those elements are and study what life is and study, you know, what the natural world is made out of, but also it helped us make experiments and it helped us actually talk to each other and collaborate. That's and right. that's kind of the beginnings of all that. Again, Dr. Tim Kowalczyk. So were people not really collaborating in, in the natural sciences before that? You said there was some isolation happening. Well, I think it's interesting. You can kind of tie the strength and sort of vitality of those communications with the development of communication across societies over time. So there are early alchemical writings from 300 AD in Egypt that were recovered more recently, and you can find evidence that some ideas that came out of that part of the world sort of resurfaced in medieval Europe mm -hmm. or resurfaced in the golden age of Islam. So you see those kinds of communications happening in some kind of writing over sort of generation time spans. But then as we have things like the printing press coming into allowing sort of closer to real-time communication where you can go and get a book that someone published in you know, the same year, that, that the ideas were written down, or letters which also helped kind of establish the first collections of scientific works and the first ingredients of our modern scientific publication scheme. You can see how the pace and speed of communication is reflected in the development of alchemy into the, the modern physical and life sciences as we know them. And along the same lines, it's interesting that alchemists, let's say in Europe, were calling themselves alchemist, which alchemy is apparently an Arabic word, alchemy, okay? So there was already an element of international mm -hmm. exchange of ideas, or there was an international process of, as you mentioned, of expressing one's ideas and making them available. And also communications were becoming faster, yes, because of the printing press, but also the roads were better, 
the horse remained the horse. I mean, the communication, the, the, the mail still was slow, but as more order was, inter societal order was introduced, let's say, throughout, throughout uh, Western Europe or Eurasia, the more mail was, 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 was traveling and people were receiving their letters. You were telling me about how the birth of the periodic table was around the same time as the birth of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about a little bit about that because I would like to give our audience kind of a background. What do they need to know before we talk about mm -hmm. um, the periodic table? So how does it relate to the Industrial Revolution? I can, uh, I can start here a little bit. So uh, historically the Industrial Revolution is 1800. Soon after the steam engine was placed on railroad tracks. So this combination of power at the factory. Factories emerged because of the steam engine. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then transportation was beca became much faster and more goods and better goods can be made and those goods can be spread around much faster. That, among other things, meant much faster communications. Journals, scientific journals, I think, emerged around this time. Like periodic journal, mm -hmm. journals, those which everybody who, who paid attention and had some resources could get access to. On top of this, in addition to the steam engine, there were other industries which came about. For example, industries of producing different paints Okay, that was directly tied to chemistry, chemical developments. So you're saying that uh, Germany had, did they have a monopoly on a lot of paints? So you were talking about that. Uh, if don't you don't know. mind, I if, don't I, if I can talk about it. But <laughs> yeah. So Germany was the central place in Europe where there were most of universities. One reason why, yeah, chemistry as science was, uh, I mean, we may call it uh, dominated by German, but a lot of earlier chemistry literature, as we know it, is, is written in German. Yeah. A lot of chemistry terms today are German. Th this is the 150th anniversary of the periodic table, mm -hmm. but it's also the 150th anniversary, I believe, of the Transcontinental Railroad. So I think that we see that connection. And I like mm -hmm. what you're saying. If you can transport a lot of goods, maybe the demand for those goods go up too. So how do you produce those goods? And you need, you need a lot of a lot of technology. I think it also just highlights how quickly the world was changing at that mm -hmm. time relative to yeah. the two, three generations before that one. So much new information was being generated by virtue of access to energy and yeah. the sort of amount of energy used per person in these parts of the world. I mean, it makes a, a world of difference in terms of the information flow coming in, just in terms of, for example, the number of elements that we knew were you know, isolable increased significantly in that period leading up to Mendeleev's classification mm -hmm. and others as well. So we were mentioning in the, the alchemy discussion that you know there were some efforts to, to do some experiments and there were actually very early efforts to classify the underlying elements going all the way back to Greek philosophers who proposed the sort of four elements that you hear in a lot of pop culture about earth, wind, water, fire. Mm -hmm. But then going beyond that, there was a chemist, Dabir Ibn Hayyan, or an alchemist really, who did attempt to classify elements that look more like the elements that we know today. But the, the nature of the experiments weren't as reproducible as the kind that now establish our current cutter of elements. And getting to that point of establishing this larger set of elements where we can start to make the classification make sense was really enabled by the Industrial Revolution. And I would add that the instrumentation mm -hmm. available to scientists at time of Dalton and after, this instrumentation was in large part was made possible by the Industrial Revolution itself. So the Industrial Revolution not only demanded more scientific discoveries, but also facilitated scientific discoveries with better instruments. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to travel back in time to 1869.
Welcome back to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff, and we've traveled back in time to the year 1869, and I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the scientists that were instrumental in creating the periodic table and the beginnings of atomic theory. The Russian chemist Dmitry Mendeleev, the English physicist John Dalton, how's it going? And the German chemist Julius Mayer. You are famous for these quotes and helping create the periodic table, so I've given you binders from the future. And I would love it if you could actually read your quotes in your native language and then also translate it for us and for myself. And we can actually dissect these quotes and better understand the periodic table. Great. So this is from John Dalton. So Yourself, I, right? That's right. I, John Dalton, propose that matter, though divisible in an extreme degree, is nevertheless not infinitely divisible. That is, there must be some point beyond which we cannot go in the division of matter. I've chosen the word atom to signify these ultimate, smallest, indivisible particles. Atoms of the same chemical element have the same chemical properties and do not transmute or change into different elements. So you truly believe there is an atom and that is the smallest we can go. That is what matter is created out right. of. And so this is, we can divide up to that point and no further. Dr. Mendeleev, you are credited of putting together this periodic table. How does that relate to Dr. Dalton's quote and how does this all relate to each other? What I think and what I did is based entirely on work of John Dalton, my colleague John Dalton, and other colleagues and contemporaries, and I'm, for which I'm very grateful. So let me read first in Russian what, what I think about the nature and then we'll proceed in English. Я, Дмитрий Менделеев, утверждаю, что свойства простых тел а также формы и свойства соединений элементов находятся в периодической зависимости от величины атомных весов, масс элементов. I, Дмитрий Менделеев, propose that properties of basic matter as well as of complex compounds of elements display periodic dependence on the atomic weights, masses of the elements. And this thinking allows us to find a lot of logic and order in seemingly chaotic behavior of various substances and compounds. So where chemistry was during this time, you really want to kind of put order to it, kind of like physics has laws, we kind of want to give chemistry similar universal fundamental principle laws. That's exactly the case and when I started teaching chemistry as, as a young professor, I was preparing my own textbook in general chemistry and I wrote volume number one for first batch of elements and I easily realized to cover all the elements, I will have to write seven volumes. Mm. And that was definitely not feasible for me. And it was even much harder, would be much harder for the students to digest and understand. So I really wanted to display chemistry as a logical science, truly as a science. And I was looking, in fact, I was looking for those laws for for a number of years. Hence the periodic law and the periodic table. And it worked very spectacularly, colleague, yeah. uh, because you actually predicted that there would be elements that would be found. Danke schön, Herr Professor Meyer. Uh, My pleasure. So why don't you tell us your story? I also was too young to have met Dr. Dalton here. But in fact, Dr. Mendeleev and me, we actually met at the first chemical conference in Karlsruhe. International conference. International conference. And we also 
had the honor to learn and study under the same mentor at mm -hmm. the University of Heidelberg. Professor Bonson. Yeah. yeah. So you're like research siblings. In a yes. way, yes. Yeah. And, and, and ideas, in terms of our ideas, we co-developed, so to speak. Yes, I also wrote a textbook and tried to organize the elements and make them more accessible to my students. And you made perfect, wonderful observations, as I understand. Yes. Yes, yeah, so can you, can you share with us your kind of synopsis, your thought about the startings of atomic theory? Yeah, so my ideas are very similar to Dr. Mendeleev's ideas, but I was having some additional musings or, or suspicions about the true nature of atoms. Well, let me read this. Um, ich, Julius Lothar Meyer, postuliere, dass die bis jetzt unzerlegten chemischen Elemente absolut unzerlegbare Stoffe seien, ist gegenwärtig zumindest sehr unwahrscheinlich. Vielmehr scheint es, dass die Atome der Elemente nicht die letzten, sondern nur die näheren Bestandteile der Molekeln sowohl der Elemente wie der Verbindungen bilden, die Molekeln oder Moleküle als Massenteile erster, die Atome als solche zweiter Ordnung anzusehen sind, die ihrerseits wiederum aus Massenteilchen einer dritten, höheren Ordnung bestehen werden. So let me read this in, in English. So I, Julius Lothar Meyer, postulate that, that the as yet undivided chemical elements are absolutely irreducible substances is currently at least very unlikely. Rather, it seems that the atoms of elements are not the final, but only the immediate constituents of the molecules of both the elements and the compounds the molecule or molecule as foremost division of matter, the atoms being considered as second order, in turn consisting of matter particles of a third higher order. Wunderbar. So this idea that the atoms can actually be broken down into subatomic particles, which we know now, I'm just spoiler alert, in the future, that's actually true. Yeah, I heard they, they're discovering <laughs> new particles every year. Every year. And we are building new instrumentation to discover those barely stable elements. We have a lot of magic here. I traveled back in time. Now let's mentally travel forward in time. What do you think is going to kind of be that next wave of chemistry using the periodic table? I think today we're starting to become more efficient using 21st century technologies like computing and advanced instrumentation to explore and take advantage of this classification scheme as best as we can. An example that I like to share related to my field of computational chemistry. Dr. Tim Kowalczyk's. Yes, yeah, so one example would be taking advantage of these subatomic particles to take advantage of their ability to exist in what we think of as multiple conditions at the same time, as opposed to just sort of an on or off condition. It's so-called quantum computing. It's an exciting direction that our current understanding of the elements can take us in. More broadly, as we continue to collide particles together and try to discover new elements, there is a hypothesized island of stability, at which point we may be able to find nuclei that are stable for longer than the milliseconds or less that we currently see. And I would quickly add, as a biochemist, the devices you choose today to collide light atoms and, and particles to create larger, less stable atoms. We use, those are cyclotrons. We use similar devices, cyclotrons, in our hospitals. I'm a biochemist, so my work is partially related to this. So cyclotrons are used in hospitals to generate less stable radioactive nuclei to be injected as probes to analyze problem spots in patients, tumors, and wow. others. So the idea of Professor Meyer that atoms can have subatomic particles now paying back big time in terms of benefits to human health. 
Well, I want to thank you all for letting me travel back in time and come into your lab. And thank you for teaching me all about chemistry and the periodic table. That's why it's a great pleasure. Thank Thank you to doctors Sergei Smirnov, Dietmar Schwartz, and Tim Kowalczyk for taking the time to help us celebrate the year of the periodic table in late 2019. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded in the Digital Media Center at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Thank you to Darren Brown and the DMC crew. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Robert Clark, and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Zarek Coakley, Julia Thorpe, and Ariel Shiley. If you missed any of our show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.